Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Friends, take your Bibles, please, at this time and join with me as we find our way to Leviticus 19, verse 2. Leviticus 19, verse 2. And as we're finding our way to our Bibles here, I want to welcome the rest of our church family worshiping in our Family Life Center, as well as our extended family worshiping from all points, uh, presumably with sand and sunshine somewhere. We hope you're tuning in, and we welcome you into this conversation and look forward to having you back soon. But today, our text is one verse for now. Leviticus 19, verse 2, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. May God now add a blessing to the reading and the hearing and the doing of his word. Will you pray with me now? God, even now as we worship, we recognize that we have gathered into this space and have collected ourselves into this moment from a thousand different starting points. And there are some, Lord, who have gathered into this moment deliberately and it's been a miracle that they could even show up because of the load they've been carrying. And there are those who have been free and are now looking for some way for their life to matter and they come seeking it around your open word. And there are some who are afraid today and some who are celebrating today and in this moment in which your body is gathered together, we pray that you would alleviate heart and mind long enough that we may actually hear you, see you, feel you, hear among us. And may what we hear and see and feel transform us. We pray that now in the name of Christ. And so it is our prayer. Come, Holy Spirit, our hearts inspire and fill us with your holy fire. For if you are with us, Nothing else matters. And if you are not with us, then nothing else matters. Amen. 
Well, many of you know that uh, I just got back from out of country. Uh, last week, I was with my wife and some students of hers and chaperones uh, on a culinary arts trip to Italy. I know you feel really sorry for me, but I have come home, and now the, the detox is beginning because of so much good food. But it was a great trip, and I want to tell you that while we were in Sicily, in the southern part of that province, we visited a city called um, Palermo. In Palermo, we went to a church, and the church was the Cathedral of Montreal, cathedral built in the late 1100s. A few pictures of it here before you. Absolutely magnificent. It was a Norman architecture built by William II in the late 1100s. So many things spectacular about this place of worship, but of the things that struck me while we were walking through those those corridors was the interior on the interior of the duoma there was constructed and inlaid two and a half tons of pure gold everywhere we looked thousands of tiny Tiles made of gold that, that made up mosaics and, and, and frescoes. And, and everywhere you look, the gold shined as if it was just put there yesterday. But after one millennium in use, it still had its sheen. It hadn't been tarnished. It hadn't been worn. And the secret is in its construction. Apparently, it seems that those who built the cathedral began by pouring gold into a mold. And once it sits up and is solid, well, they, they poured glass on top of the gold. And once the glass had settled and cooled and solidified, they turned over the tile and put another layer of glass on top. And as it settled and cooled and solidified, they placed it in its rightful mold, shaped it into whatever design, no two designs the same, by the way, so that the mosaic would be protected and preserved throughout all of time. This is Arts and Crafts with the Pastor. So that those who come along his way, years later, can look at it as if it was just put there yesterday. I want you to think about this as we go into Leviticus 19. You know why? Thank you for asking. Because when we go to Leviticus 19, there is in that new section of Leviticus a verse of golden treasure. A verse so powerful that if we truly understood what it means, if we could truly learn to live up to and into the truth of this particular verse, 
It would change everything about the way we exist with one another. A verse that would change every relationship we have. It would change every season we go through, every crisis we face. And in that 19 verse 2, chapter 19 verse 2, we hear God issuing a call. And what is the gold in this passage? The gold is just this. You were made to be holy. You were made to be holy. What does it mean to be holy? To be holy doesn't mean to be better than everybody else. It doesn't mean to be superior to anybody else. It doesn't even mean to be perfect because perfection is kind of an illusion, by the way. If you haven't discovered it yet, perfection is illusion. No, no, holiness is better than perfection. You are called and made to be holy as God is holy. In other words, you are designed in such a way as to embody the distinct holy character and personhood and compassion and mercy and justice and love of God in your everyday life. Holy in the morning, holy at noonday, and holy as the sun sets at night. And, and this has been God's desire all along, to create a people who, well, a people who is set apart for a distinct, unique purpose. To be holy is to be set apart for a particular purpose. It's been his attempt from the very beginning, hasn't it? From Genesis chapter 1, and God created humankind in God's own image. Why? So that there will be evidence in the world of the presence of a God who is near in each of us. In Genesis 12, God goes to Abram and says to Abram, Abram, you're really not that special. You're not that better. You're not that more superior than anybody else, but I'm setting you aside to do something with you. I will bless you and your family so that through you, the world will be blessed, holy, set apart. So God shows up in Exodus and liberates those who were enslaved and takes them to the foot of Mount Sinai and says to them in chapter 19, I want to be your God. And I want you to be my people, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation set apart for a distinct purpose. So they build a tabernacle. They create a space in which they learn to become distinct, unique, set apart, holy. And Leviticus opens up with that verse, that verse that begins the entire book. You know the verse on three. Say it with me. One, two, three. Vayikra, come near, come near. And why come near? The God of the cosmos says to each and every human being, come near so that you may learn to become holy as I am holy. You have the capacity to live like God. And the first 10 chapters of Leviticus are all about creating rhythms and rituals and practices to allow holiness to form in the people, to be set apart on a weekly rhythmic basis. Chapters 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 become the clean and unclean passages where they learn that they are living in an unclean world, but they are called to live clean lives. 
in which they discover that there is both clean and unclean in all of us. Then chapter 16, has anybody noticed that we skip chapter 16? Because I'm saving chapter 16 for two weeks from today when we stand here and say the Lord is risen, risen indeed. Because chapter 16 is the apex of all the Bible and we will conclude our study in Leviticus with Leviticus 16 as we talk about the day of atonement and the great scapegoat of the cosmos. But today we come to this chapter 17 through 22, a passage known as the Holiness Code. And in the Holiness Code, there are these instructions, these specific ethical demands that call these people to become something that they've never imagined becoming. Chapter 19, verse 2 says, Be holy, for I am holy. But as you read the rest of the Holiness Code, The language changes. It gets even better than that. It goes on to say, Be holy because I am the Lord, your God, and I am making you holy. As you read chapter 20 and 21 and 22, You shall be holy for I, the Lord, am making you holy. In other words, you're not there yet. You're not there yet. You've just come out of Egypt 11 months ago. I know you're broken, and I know you're bruised, and I expect some very high uh, expectations out of you, but I recognize that you are not there, so I will make you holy. In other words, for the first time in human history, we're being introduced to a God who, yes, has high expectations, but has a divine patience to help us get where we need to be from where we are. And that's good news for somebody today. Because I recognize that somewhere on this campus today, somebody has shown up to worship, and you have just recently emerged from some kind of brokenness. And not unlike the Israelites of old, you've gone through some season of transition, and, and, and maybe there was a failure or maybe a huge disappointment Or maybe you're still in the season of great fear about some unknown thing and and you've somehow found a way to muster the courage to show up here because you want to live holy and you want to live this life of grace and beauty and compassion and please God with what you do from day to day, but you just don't know where to start. And it's Leviticus who says, for the first time in human history, This God is a God who knows you are not finished. This God is a God who knows where you are in your brokenness, but has the patience to work with you until you are gradually transformed into his image a little bit at a time. What I've been saying for years, and I say it almost every week somewhere in some context to somebody, God meets you where you are, but loves you too much to leave you there. And that's good news for somebody because if that's the nature of God, to meet you where you are, but love you too much to leave you there, if that's the nature of God, then that surely must be the nature of his son, the Christ. And if that's the nature of his son, the Christ, then it must be the nature of Christ's bride, the church. And I'm here to tell you, for as long as you and I have air in our lungs, we must fight, be diligent, be awake, alert to make sure that at Johns Creek Baptist, we remain 
A community of faith who recognizes that none of us are finished. That we are all continually being uh, improved by the power of God's transforming love. We have to make sure that in this world of chaos and fear and rejection and condemnation, that those who are actually broken recognize that there is at least one space in the world where they can come and be safe. The church must be grace-centered and patient with people the way God is grace-centered and patient with people. We are all, each one, and every, every one of us, um, imperfect people with unfinished stories. And if we're all imperfect people with unfinished stories, then we, must, we, we, we got to make sure that our neighbors and those who are hurting, maybe even privately, understand that when you show up here, we will not condemn you, and we will not judge you, but you will have a safe place for God to do God's work on you in God's good timing as we are all being perfected by divine love. Let the church say amen. Yes. So just a public service announcement. If you have shown up today because somehow you mustered the courage to walk through these doors, despite how broken and afraid or alone you may feel, you need to know that at Johns Creek you are safe and you are welcome. There's a place for you to belong. Now, that is the gold in this text, that you were made to be holy despite what you see when you look in the mirror. You're made to be divine in God's own holy image but if you and I are going to preserve that holy identity then we're going to need some I don't know some plates of protective glass around our golden identity we're going to need something that helps us preserve our holy identity as people set apart for a purpose and that is where chapters 18 and 20 come in so in 19, chapter 19, here is the golden nugget. You're made to be holy. Be holy as I am holy. But flanking chapter 19 on both sides, chapters 18 and chapter 20, there's a long list of ethical requirements. Ethical uh, requirements and commands and edicts and duties that God puts upon the people for the purpose of protecting our holy identity. And that means that if we are set to be set aside or set apart for God's purpose, there are certain behaviors that we must practice that enable us to preserve that holy identity. So in chapter 18, verse 1, we hear these words. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live, and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I'm bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws, for the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. So, in Egypt where they were from, and in Canaan, where they are headed. There is a way of life, a way to exist in the world that does not reflect the holy identity and character of God. 
And the way of life was dominated by, by rhythms of domination and oppression, systemic injustice at every turn, the neglect of the vulnerable, sexual promiscuity and perversion, even child sacrifice. And God says that that's Egypt. That's not you. And God says, that's Canaan. See, that's not you. He goes on in verse 28 to continue. He says, do not defile yourselves in any of these ways because this is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you became defiled. Even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin. And the land, I love this phrase, the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you must keep my decrees and my laws. The native-born and the foreigners residing among you must not do any of these detestable things. For all these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you. And the land became defiled. See? And if you defile the land, you, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. Now, what is happening in this verse? God is saying, I mean to do something with you that's different, that's unique. I want to shape something in you that forms a kind of holy identity where you exist in the world in such a way as to demonstrate to the world my character. So in Egypt and in Canaan, there will be a way of life that is not your way of life. And then he goes on to say, you know, if you, if you begin to live unholy lives in a holy land, the land will, well, bleh, it'll vomit you out. Now, what's going on in all that passage? Well, I'm glad you asked. So much is going on in this passage. I mean, there's so much going on that I can't possibly have the time to tell you about. I wish I did have the time. I mean, if I had the time to tell you what's going on in this passage, you know what I'd tell you? If I had the time, I would tell you, don't forget, brothers and sisters, that none of what we are reading, none of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy, none of it ever came into written form until generations after these things happened. If I had time, what I would say to you is that it came into shape during exile. I would say to you, if I had time, that don't forget these who are camped out at Sinai eventually get up and they cross the Jordan and they occupy the promised land. And eventually there's a king who rises up whose name is David and he unifies the whole kingdom. And they have a son. His name is Solomon. And Solomon creates this magnificent temple to glorify, wait for it, this liberating God who long ago set them all free. It's all such a great story, except in creating the temple, a permanent version of the temporary tabernacle back in the day, in creating the temple, and in practicing temple rites, they began to practice corruption. And they began to use even slave labor to construct a temple to the one who had delivered them from slavery. And they began to oppress their workers and began to suppress the pay and the paycheck of the workers, the hired hands. And all around, the prophets began to merge. The prophets would say, have you lost your mind? You know what's going to happen. This was said long ago. If you get stupid, the land will vomit you out. 
So Babylon comes and ransacks the city and sends them into exile. And generations later, they're in exile, mourning by the river. And this is where we hear Psalm 137. There, by the rivers of Babylon, we hung up our harps on the willow trees. Because our tormentors asked us for mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion, but how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And rabbis begin to emerge and say, Uh, yeah. And they tell stories. And they begin to put into writing the scriptures that you and I are reading today, and they say it in a way that speaks to the contemporary crisis of exile when they say, if you get stupid, if you act unholy before a holy God in a holy land, the land itself will vomit you out. That's technically in the Hebrew is how you pronounce it. Well, vomit you out. But if I had time, I'd tell you that. But since I don't, I won't. Now listen, if I did have time, you know what I would tell you about this? Hey, don't behave like Egypt and don't behave like Canaan. You know what I would tell you? If I had time, I'd tell you how no matter who you are, no matter where we go, we always have a tendency to pick up the behavioral patterns of those who are around us. And that's true in Egypt as it's true in Canaan, as it's true in Foco, as it's true in Gwinnett. Come on. And the call is to remember you are to be set apart, separate, distinct, holy. But since I don't have time to tell you, I won't. If I had time, you know what else I would say to you? I would say to you that when you hear the writer say, don't act like Egypt and don't act like Canaan, that's a reference to their past and their future. And it occurs to me as a preacher reading these texts, that you know what keeps a lot of us from living holy lives reflective of the character of God right here today is because some of us are so stuck in the something that happened back in our Egypt. And we're still enslaved by something that we can't quite get free from. And you can't live a life of holiness and, and intentionality because you're not present. And there are others of us who may not have a problem with our past but for others of us, we think about Canaan all the time. Oh, you know, if, if only I get a new job, then it'll be better. And if only uh, the kids would just call more often, it'd be much better. And, and if only the, the, you know, the, we'd, the move would happen or the, the new job would emerge or if only the divorce would finalize. If, if, if. And we can't live this sense of holy presence because we're either behind or before. But what I will tell you is this. God understood that to call us to be a holy people was something of a golden verse, a golden treasure, a treasure hidden in clay jars, a treasure not made with human hands. But God also knew that to preserve that holy identity as people set apart, we would need on both sides protective glass. We would need a set of ethical standards, and that's what we have in chapters 18 and 20. And in 18 and 20, there's a lot of sex, and there's a lot of social responsibility, and it's all in those few chapters. i got to tell you, there's a, there's a whole lot of sex in Leviticus. My favorite story of all time is when I was a youth minister, and I took some students to Centrifuge. It was a youth camp that we used to go to. 
And we're sitting there in the cafeteria, and my seventh graders, about three of my seventh grade boys, found Leviticus chapter 18, 19, and 20. And they're sitting over there at the lunch table, and they're reading this during lunch. Now, we're two tables over, so my colleague and I, we know exactly what they're doing. We know what they're reading. They'd read it, then they'd laugh a little bit, then they'd read it some more. And we knew what they were doing, so we just got to let it happen. It's the Bible, right? Well, this woman comes up to our table. It was a woman from another one of the churches who was attending Centrifuge that week. And she was getting on our last nerve all week long. She was one of these people who was so spiritual that every word that dripped out of her mouth had something to do with God and the Lord and spirit and something. You ever been around somebody and, and, and they, they just drip with God talk so much that they can't have a normal conversation? Well, this was this woman. And all week long, it was the Lord this and the Lord that. And I'm like, you know what? I work for the guy. I don't mind talking about the Lord, but can we just talk about baseball or something? And so she comes up to the table. And we're two tables away from these seventh graders pouring over Leviticus 18, 19, 20 about sex everywhere. And, and we said, let's have some fun with this woman. <laughs> so she sits down at our table and we said, we want you to look at that table over there. Look at those boys. Seventh grade. This is free time. They're not even made to. And yet they're pouring into the word of God. <laughs> you know what she said? Hallelujah. <laughs> but Leviticus 18, 19, and 20 has a lot to do with sex. Why? Why? Because in Egypt and in Canaan, Sex is thought of and practiced in a particular way that I don't want you to practice. There is perversion. There are temple prostitutes in Egypt and in Canaan, not with you. There is incest as a daily norm in Egypt and in Canaan, not with you. And there is explicitly one mandate after the next in which the text says, look, in Egypt and in Canaan, they do these things, but not you. Don't have sex with your sister. Don't have sex with your uncle's wife. Don't have sex with your cousin's wife. It goes on and on. In fact, in one place it even says, don't have sex with your mother. And then it's almost comical because the next line is, she's your mother. That's how it goes. And one after the next, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, because this is what they do in Egypt and Canaan. Now, this is also the place in Leviticus where the famous line, and a man shall not lay down with another man as with a woman. And I know you've been eager to hear what I have to say about that because the time we started Leviticus like 30 months ago, you've been saying, what are you going to say about that one? Well, this is what I'm going to say about it. As I have always said in Leviticus, you have to remember not just what the text says, but what the text is doing in the ears and hearts and minds of those who hear what it says. And we have to remember that this text has a context. And this context is that it is male-dominated. Every person being addressed in Leviticus 18, 19, 20 are men. It's written by men, in fact, written by heterosexual men to other heterosexual men who are performing homosexual acts with other heterosexual men in their families. 
It's about nephews and uncles and fathers and uh, cousins and, and so forth. And in this text, it is specifically designed to talk about a particular expression of homosexual activity. It is also in the same section that says it's an abomination to have sex with a woman who has been divorced. And it's an abomination to have sex with a woman on her period. It's an abomination to marry someone and have sex with her if she's not a virgin. It's the same section that also says, by the way, when you're planting your vineyard, don't plant two kinds of seed in the same field. And don't wear clothes that have two kinds of material woven together. Why? Because what's going on here, if you back the camera up and look at the whole thing, God is attempting to demonstrate to the people, for you to be holy, for you to be set apart, it means that you have to stabilize what is currently the instability of your family system. If you have sex with your sister or your aunt or your mother, it will destabilize the family. And if a man in your family has sex with a man in your family, it will destabilize the family. So don't do it. What this text does not address is the way that you and I talk about uh, homosexual issues today. It does not address homosexual orientation. It does not address biology, it does not address environment, it does not address the spectrum of, of hormones, estrogen and testosterone. It does not address some of the issues that emerge when you and I talk about LGBTQ matters. Now, is there a time and place to discuss those matters and where the church needs to, to speak up and to embrace a deliberate dialogue about those things? Yes, there is a time and place. But you need to know as good biblical scholars of Leviticus that Leviticus doesn't address it. So the point is, they back up the camera, and why is it even in there? Because in Egypt and in Canaan, there is a way to live stable even if the world around them is going crazy. And it not only addresses sexuality, and by the way, before we move on to the next matter, those of you who may already be thumbing out an email to me saying that that was not nearly conservative enough or that was not nearly liberal enough, just put yourself at ease. I've heard it all before. Understand that what we are called to do is take this text seriously in all of its context so that we might be able to discover what is it saying to us in our complex situation today. Now, it also says, if you're going to be a holy people, that's the gold in you, but you need protective glass, certain behaviors to practice to preserve your holy identity, and another is social responsibility and justice and ethics. So there is not only an individual morality needed in you, there is a social morality required of you if you are to be called by my name. So we read in chapter 19 these words. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen 
and leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. He goes on to say in the same chapter, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as you love yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And as you're reading through 18, 19, and 20, you'll come across that phrase again and again and again. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. 26 times in that short span, 26 times, the Lord says, I am the Lord your God. Be mindful of the poor. Care for the vulnerable. Stop acting stupid in the land of holy living. I am the land, I am the Lord your God. Every time you hear the phrase, it is a direct and deliberate throwback to Exodus. The first time they heard that phrase was when he showed up to set them free and he says to them, I am the Lord your God. I liberate people. Follow me. So he says to them here in Leviticus, if you're going to be called by my name and espouse this holy identity that I am establishing in you, then you must live as I lived among you. You are set free in order to set people free. You've been brought in in order to bring in. You've been cared for in order to care. And in the day that you forget, the land itself will vomit you out. So what is God doing here? God is saying, yes, you're made to be holy. But the way you preserve your holy identity, you can lose it. You can lose your holy identity. But there is a way to hold on to the integrity of your holy identity by exercising ethics. Individual ethics. Social ethics. So behave your way into remembering who you are. I love what Richard Rohr said about it. Richard Rohr said, We don't think our way into new ways of behaving. We behave our way into new ways of thinking. What is God calling you to do to demonstrate your holy identity as a follower of Christ? So in all of Leviticus, there is one passage upon which everything hangs. In fact, the rabbis say that there is one verse in chapter 19 that is in the direct center of the entire Torah. There are this many verses before it from Genesis, and then this many verses after it to the end of Deuteronomy. This verse is the, the apex upon which the whole thing hangs. It's Leviticus 19. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord, and I hear the Lord Jesus Christ. When the lawyer comes to him and says, what's the most important command? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and all your mind, and all your soul. But the second is like it, and Jesus reaches back to Leviticus and yanks forward this verse that's at the center of the Torah. And Jesus said, the second is just like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. How do you preserve the goal of your holy identity? Love. Love. Let the church say amen. Let's bow together. Good and loving God, we recognize that we have been loved in order to love. 
We forget it. I forget it. I absorb your grace and neglect sharing it with others. I enjoy the benefit of your mercy and yet keep it to myself way too often. But today we confess that we are waking up to that reality and we, we pray that you would continue to do in us what you were doing in our ancient sisters and brothers. Make us holy. Meet us where we are, but love us too much to leave us there. In someone today, we pray that you would move in such a way as to transform the heart and mind, beginning even right now. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen.